Listener Production. and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. For this episode, I'm talking with a colleague who I've been fortunate to work with in various places around the world, including the Singapore Grand Prix and regularly at Albert Park in Melbourne for the Aussie F1 round. Louise Goodman is universally loved in the Formula One paddock with long-standing connections to many of the key staff who make the show go round. Lou knows so many people working in the pit lane and because she's respected, they'll give her a bit more access to allow viewers to see what's happening backstage, so to speak. In some ways, Lou was an early pioneer for women in motorsport, working in PR or communications and later in broadcasting. Now, she doesn't see herself as a champion of that program, which is doing great things now. Lou simply saw herself as a part of the team, a human being doing her bit and loving it. We'll talk about that and how she has great admiration these days for the work going on to improve inclusivity and the growing presence of seriously talented women in the sport. Lou has this infectious smile that comes through the microphone in her words. She enjoys a story and shares some great ones here from Working with the live wire, Eddie Jordan, to Neil Crompton taking Eddie Irvine water skiing and nearly giving her heart failure as she watched her driver asking Crompo to go a bit faster. Doing PR for Martin Brundle and cool trading places concepts like one with Colin McRae. Bringing music to the paddock and interviewing the stars of the Ocean's Eleven movie franchise ahead of the Monaco Grand Prix. Plus... Riding in a two-seater F1 car when it crashed, losing her beloved John boy, John Walton, who worked at Minardi and bravely coming back to work in the lane sooner than most probably would have had the strength for. There's stories of working with the great Murray Walker. James Allen, who you can find in our Rusty's Garage library, gives me a little intel on Lou and phones plus media training with some of the stars of today, including a young fella named Lando Norris, well before he was on the F1 grid. There's a takeaway or two there for young racers as well. Listen out for that. Lou's at home in the UK during the recent F1 summer break. I'm in the studio at my place, and it's just like the dinner conversations we so often have during Grand Prix week. Enjoy being part of the chat. Louise Goodman, welcome. Thank you very much, Rusty. Nice to be in your garage. It's great to have you with us. I'd love to start these things with a little bit of life and time. Where did you grow up in the UK? What were, if any, the early kind of car influences? What was in the driveway when you were growing up and so on? I grew up um, in Hampshire, which is in the south of England, a little town called Alsford, which is uh, Winchester's probably the, the closest place that people would have, will have heard of. And no, um, no car influences particularly, but I just, I think I was just one of those kids who, who came out of the womb loving things with wheels and an engine. You know, I can remember as a, as a small child going for, for picnics um, 
and, and with my, you know, with my family in to an area called the New Forest. And we'd stop there and have a picnic on the way down to see my grandparents. And I remember as a small car, like sitting on my dad's knee and steering the car. And, and you know, when I could actually reach the pedals, um, one of my great thrills in life was when he got home from work and I was allowed to park the car in the garage. It was like, woo, woo, you know. So I just, I, as I say, I just came out loving things with wheels and an engine. I, I, I A lot of my misspent youth was misspent on the back of friends' motorbikes hooning around. And But there wasn't really any motorsport influence per se. The only thing that was, Allsford um, is also the hometown of Derek Warwick. Um, and uh, and his his brother Paul, um, who ah. was sadly sadly died in an, in an accident, um, another very fantastic racing driver, was at the local school with my with my little sister, and and Derek was stock car racing. Um, you know, at this point when I was sort of a youngster, and I can remember walking past Warwick Traders, which was the family business, um, on the way to school in the morning, and there was a really cool. Mark II Ford Capri that used to be parked outside that I used to lust after. Amazing. So did you have, I mean, you've ended up in a broadcasting capacity. You've ended up media training, which we'll get to and so on. Did you always have a good command of the English language? What was Louise Goodman like at school? Um, Louise Goodman was was a proper little swat at school when she was young and then got worse and less interested in it as she got older. (laughs) (laughs) As far more interesting things came into play. But no, I mean, I enjoyed school, but English was always my strongest subject. Um, History, English, um, you know, were my my favourite subjects. So um, nobody ever, no careers advisor ever said, oh, if you thought of journalism, because it, you know, seems like the perfect fit for me. But um, oh, I fell into doing it really. But uh, yeah, it was it was always 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 English was was the thing I got a stars for. What about the move into motor racing and th- like what was the first job when you got out of high school? Was it always about trying to be in the median around motorsport, or was there no. a little something else first? How did you fall into it or get into it? It was it was pure fluke that I got into it. I I, I it was pure fluke that I got into journalism. To be quite honest, I. When I left school, I went travelling over to the States. Or when I left college, I went travelling over to the States. Um, and I was staying with some friends whose family business was building offshore powerboats. They had a company called Cougar Marine. Um, and whilst I was there, the editor of a powerboat racing magazine came over to do a stateside issue. So I kind of hung out with her a bit, acted as her uh, photographer, um, you know, went and shot a few features for her and or with her rather. And and then when I we got back to the UK, she she offered me a job on the magazine. So I started out selling advertising, which I was rubbish at. I'm a useless salesperson, absolutely useless. I'd you know phone up somebody and say, oh, do you want to take a you know quarter page in the magazine this month? And they'd say, oh, a bit tight this month. And I'd say, all right, never mind. I'll try you next week. My sales technique was rubbish. So I very quickly um, a, a position came up on the editorial side. So so I started you know that. That's where I really honed my journalistic skills, and and I um I ended up editing the magazine, which was great because then I was yeah, I was traveling to races and um, covering the races. But it was it was whilst I was working there um, that I met a guy called Tony Jardine, who was had worked in motorsport for a while. He had um, recently set up his own PR company, and he was looking for somebody to to come and work initially as his effectively sort of secretary number two it was just the two of us really so I was looking for a a slightly easier job because I was off traveling again um and uh uh, you know and the the magazine was quite a sort of you know took all hours um so I wanted an easier job so I could get some evening work as well to save up money so so I said to Tony oh 
I'll come along and, and be your secretary. So that was really my entree because Tony had always worked in the world of motorsport. And I actually worked for him out in, I I, um, I was traveling around in in Australia when um, they came out for the Grand Prix and he managed to get word to me and say, would I be available to come and help him out down in Adelaide? So I turned up on the, on the back of a motorbike um, with my little bag and, you know, got dumped off, um, worked at the Adelaide Grand Prix, which was my first time ever, you know, working in, inside the Formula One paddock. And then at the end of the weekend, I climbed back on the motorbike and, you know, went on the next sort of trip, part of the part of the trip. So, uh, so yeah, happy <laughs> memories of that. But that was, as I say, that was my entree into, into motorsport. When I got back to the UK, Tony offered me a job and uh, it just went from there. That is fantastic. Before we get on to Adelaide, Australia and, and beyond and your time in Formula One, tell us a little bit more about the Powerboats because um, fans of the podcast, I mean, we've had uh, people like Matt Hall on, who's an accomplished stunt pilot, talked about planes and all sorts of things. Tell us about some of the boats you were covering and the kind of stories you covered in that in that capacity with the magazine. It was a mixture, really. So we covered, well, it was called Powerboat and Water Skiing. It was the, the boats was really the, the side of it that I liked. We had a specialist water skiing guy who did most of the water skiing features, but we would cover offshore um, powerboat races. So um, probably the most famous one in, in this area is the, is the Cowstraw Key. And we would cover inshore races as well. So I would travel to various different um, places around around Europe to cover those races. It was, I mean, it was interesting times. It was, uh, you know, it was very dangerous times in powerboat racing. Um, so, you know, when we, we lost quite a, quite a few drivers um, uh, across those years. And in fact, you know, there was a lot of work was, was done on the safety. The boats were, were all open. Um, they now tend to have a, a closed canopy on them. This is the the inshore boats, wow. um, but they were they were kind of they got very quick and uh, they were the basically the way that they were flipping. Previously, it had been thought to be best practice that the the pilot the driver was thrown clear of the boat, and then that had got to the point where it wasn't working properly. So um, and and the you know the drivers were being killed. So it was it you know it was it was difficult times to be to be working in in that industry. But I used to love it. I love the racing. I still love the smell of two-stroke, you know, when the... And also, for me, with the inshore powerboats, they would start with a dead-engine start. So they'd all be lined up, and there'd be that deathly hush as everybody waited for the whistle, and then an amazing just roars, all the engines fired into life, and, and off they went. So, no, it was great times. Loved it. I knew you would be good at describing this stuff for this podcast. Fantastic. That's great that you've taken us there. When you were touring around on the on the motorbike, you love touring around Australia when you come down under for the yeah. for the GPs. You still do that now, visiting friends and so on. What parts of the country had you been to before you got to Adelaide? And what year can you remember what year that was that you went to the Adelaide <laughs> GP? That's crazy that an Aussie race was kind of your introduction. Yeah, thanks, Russ. You're gonna really age me now, aren't you? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, cheers, mate. Cheers. <laughs> Get you back for that one. Uh, <laughs> mid I Do you know what? I can't remember exactly which year it was, but I'd, I'd started in... So my best friend from school went out to Australia travelling and never made it home again. So it's been great every year seeing her when I was there. But this trip, I'd, I'd started out staying with her in uh, in Sydney. And then I worked my way up the coast. I I, um, I worked in Airlie Beach. I worked on a um, on a diving boat in Airlie Beach. And then I went up to Cairns and up to Cape Tribulation. Uh, and then across to, um, where did I go next? I went down to, oh, I went to um, Yulara and then down to Cooper Beattie and 
down to Adelaide and yeah so I had a, had a good old look around and on subsequent trips as you say it, it always makes me laugh you know when I, when I arrive at the, for the Grand Prix everyone's like where are you going this time and I've been to places that some of the Australians that I'm working with out there you guys have never heard of you know and they're like oh where's Warren <laughs> where's Warren <laughs> Northwest of Dubbo. Okay, that's a long way away. You're a you're an honorary more or less Australian in that regard. So, firstly, give <laughs> us the the impression you were there with with Tony, who many people around motorsport will will know. What impact did Formula One have on you? What did you think at the Adelaide race? There's a lot of people that still uh, remember that the Adelaide chapter very fondly. I, I, to be honest, the first one, I don't remember that much about it because I'd never been. I'd been to a, to a Grand Prix. I'd, I'd been to a Grand Prix with, with mates at, uh, at Brent Hatch in the UK. Um, but I'd, I'd never known anything um, like that. Um, so, I, you know, I was just kind of running around doing what I was told. But, but I have very happy memories of, of subsequent trips to Adelaide once I started working, working full-time in Formula One. You know, it was... It was the it was the last race of the season. It was party time, and you know how to party in Adelaide, you know. So uh, we, we we had such a such a good uh, good good time there. Um, yeah, so many stories, most of which are uh, unrepeatable. Well, <laughs> great chapter in including um, the the lineup of drivers, the cool cars, the sort of visceral sound of the whole thing. What? style of impact did the the I mean you'd been to a race obviously in the UK and so on but but what sort of impact when you're immersed in it like that and you're working in it what sort of impact did it have on you I think initially it was quite daunting because um there weren't many there weren't many women in the sport and I was um having to um, so my first job with Tony was was looking after these sort of ancillary sponsorships with with Camel so Camel came into Formula One Lotus was their primary sponsorship but they sponsored a few of the other teams as well so you know my job was going collecting the quotes from those drivers and and some of them quite frankly terrified me you know because I was this like naive young girl so people like Nelson Piquet just used to you know, have fun teasing me and winding me up. And um, Alessandra Nanini, I remember, was always be horribly flirtatious and I just didn't know where to put myself or what to do. Or, you know, it was like, I'm here to work. Don't do that. You know, really not knowing what to do. So, so yeah, it was, um, yeah, the early days, it was, um, I just remember, you know, loving it, absolutely loving it, loving the cars, loving being in that environment, but being a, one of very few women you were very conscious that there, there's not many of us around so there was a little gang of us used to there's a lovely lady called called Anne Bradshaw who was the press officer for Williams who was like mum for me you know what I mean I, she, she'd been there a few years and like Annie how do I do this and Annie how does this happen so she was always she was always brilliant good to have her on side. So initially you're, you're sort of in this role um, assisting Tony and and so on you somehow at, at one point connect with with Eddie Jordan, very small team at that stage. EJ was was a unique character. Tell us about that introduction, how that came about, and what sort of role you ended up in with them. That came about through Camel. Um, Eddie at the time had his Formula 3000 team and they had Camel sponsorship. So it started out that I was going to be the, the press officer for Eddie's Formula 3000 team. Um, so that was my initial introduction to him. I did, I did one race with him. I did the, the Poe, um, race. 
Um, and then, in fact, Jardine PR, Tony's company, got a big contract with, with Leighton House. And I became the press officer for the Leighton House Formula One team instead. So, but I, I remembered, you know, Eddie, obviously, anybody who meets Eddie, he's, he's difficult to forget. Um, he's a, a larger than life character. So, so it was great when a few years down the line, um, I was sent off to be press officer at, at Jordan, working not just with Eddie, but actually um, there was a man at, at Leighton House who was the MD at Leighton House called Ian Phillips, who subsequently moved from Leighton House and gone to Jordan as their as their sort of commercial director. So so I was there working with Ian again and and with EJ again. So it was great. We had a really tight little little gang. It was mostly that, you know, the three of us would travel to the races together, drive to and from the circuit in the same car um, every day. And so, um, yeah, spent a lot of a lot of time with them. And Eddie's just you know, he was uh, he was always fascinating to work with. Ian and I used to joke about the fact, like, does he want to be rich today or does he want to be famous today? Because those are possibly two of Eddie's favourite things in life. So, you know, it's like, are you going to have a busy day as the commercial director or am I going to have a busy day as the press officer? Which one Which one is it going to be? But, um, yeah, we, we, we used to work on the basis that we kind of work hard and play hard. Um, so we did have a, a hell of a lot of a lot of fun. Um, yeah, and, and I think there was more time to have fun. You know, the sport's become a bit 24 hours. These, well, the media side of the sport particularly has become, you know, more involved. And I think the sport just generally, obviously, we're, we're talking 20, 30 years ago, it's become a lot more complex, you know, a lot larger than teams. I was I was employee number 47 when I joined Jordan Grand Prix. That was the entire operation. Whereas, you know, you'd, you'd probably, that's, half a marketing team at the, you know some of the bigger outfits I'm being slightly facetious but do you know what I mean it was they were very very small so it was everybody did a bit of everything you know when we went to the to the races yes I was the press officer I looked after everything on the on the media side but also you know if we had sponsors coming along I was the one who do the garage tours and organize the drivers to go out for the for the dinner with them and you know stuff that would be very much down to to a marketing team in this day and age so but I I enjoyed that I liked that that buzz of you know getting stuck in and, and doing a bit of everything and you know that but one thing I, one thing I really miss um you know not working for a team and I don't know how much it happens these days because as I say they are all so much bigger but that buzz in the factory when you're producing the new car, you know, and everybody is still there working at one, two, three o'clock in the morning. And, uh, you know, I would be busy writing all the press material and printing up the press packs and organising photographs and all of that kind of thing. And the mechanics are out there, you know, in the race shop building the car. And and then everybody, it's like, OK, it's fire up time now. The first time a you know, new car would be fired up, everybody would just three o'clock in the morning that the, you know that the race shop would be would be full of people listening for the for the first fire up. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's great. He is one of the sport's great characters, Eddie. Can you give us some of the early days stuff? What he was like to work with, and the way he interacted with the team, sponsors, and so on. Because it's it was hard graft for him at that stage, wasn't it? It was. It was really you know hand to hand to mouth in some respects. Um, in that, you know, we, we had a very small budget and Eddie had basically, you know, put his, his everything that, that he had on the line to start the Formula One team. So um, he was, you know, passionate about it. He would, And that's one thing about Eddie, you know, he's always put his hand where his, where his mouth is um, and being prepared to, um, you know, 
kind of go the extra mile and, and, and risk it. I mean, you've got to pity his poor wife, Marie, who, you know, she's trying to bring up four children amongst all of this chaos and, and mayhem that EJ's, you know, creating wherever he goes. But, <laughs> but, I, but I think what it was about him, what it is about him, he has an infectious personality that you want to work for him and you want to work hard for him. And, um, you know, we would, we would laugh about the fact that, you know, Eddie would, Eddie would, go off to his property in Spain over the summer and it'd be like, you know, he'd literally just come and join us at the races and then fly back to Spain again. So, yes, he was on the phone, but we was <laughs> like, what are we doing? We're grafting away here. He's sunning, you know, living it up in Spain. And But, but you know, you wanted to do it for him. You, you were happy to, to kind of, you know, to work hard for him and to... And the team just had that really lovely feel about it. As I said, it, we had a kind of work hard, play hard mentality. So we did have a lot of fun. Um, not, you know, not just with Eddie, but with with the, with the whole team but when it came to sort of you know doing things with sponsors we we do things like we we take them you know to see so so Jordan was based at Silverstone which is quite near Oxford um and um every year at Twickenham there's a rugby match called the varsity match so it's Oxford versus Cambridge so basically you know we take the sponsors on there it was an excuse for a brilliant day out at the rugby quite frankly. But luckily, we had a couple of sponsors who really enjoyed rugby. So, you know, and those were back in the days, it's obviously, it's got a little bit more complicated these days. You can't just take people out and get them drunk anymore. But um, but certainly you could then. So we'd all bundle into a van and all head off down to, to watch the rugby. And we go to the horse racing at Windsor. We go and watch gigs, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So it, it, it really was, it really was great. But Eddie could be... Um, he can be incredibly disruptive sometimes. You know, we'd be quietly working away in the office. Um, and I sat in the office right next door to Eddie's office. There was myself, there was Lindsay, who was EJ's secretary, and there was the aforementioned Ian Phillips. And Eddie, if he, he'd just get mischievous sometimes. If he didn't have anything on, if he wasn't, you know, busting a deal somewhere, he'd become a right pain in the arse. So he'd come <laughs> in and start interfering and, you know, picking things up on your desk. and be like, Eddie, just put that down. You know, his secretary, Lindsay, would say, Eddie, just piss off. Just go back into your office. You want me to find something? You know, it was like, she talked to him like it was a child. If you don't sit down, I'll find you something to do and then you'll regret this. Don't get back in there. Just shut up and leave us alone. We're trying to work in here. You know, and Eddie would like skip off like a naughty little leprechaun <laughs> giggling and, and then go off and interfere with somebody else in the, you know, somebody else's job somewhere else in the, in the factory. So, um, yeah, I just have so many happy memories. And, and you know, you know, he's, he's still a mate to this day. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that, that hasn't changed. I would imagine there's a little bit of music in there somewhere too because he's properly into it and connected with some decent musicians too, isn't he? 100%. We would always have, um, uh, you know, Eddie would take us off to gigs. So, you know, that was one of the things that we we do with sponsors. But also we, we had a lovely time. Chris Rea um, was a big friend of the team, lovely, lovely man, and and. At the time, we had a, a big area at the back of the factory that wasn't being used. Um, so Chris basically came along and used it as a rehearsal space for his his um, God's Great Banana Skin tour. So he and the wow. band were set up in there. And that was brilliant because that kept DJ occupied. He'd disappear off there. And he had his, Eddie had his own drum kit out there as well. He plays the drums. Um, so, you know, he'd go out there and bash away on his drums. But when Chris was doing his rehearsals there, he then, as a, as a thank you, put on a special gig for everybody. So the whole factory came together one Friday night. We had our own sort of, you know, little little personal um 
performance from Chris Rear, but but we used to it the British Grand Prix as well. You know, they now, as so many races do, and in fact I always remember that was a big thing that happened in Adelaide. It now happens in Melbourne as well. But you you know you'd have bands playing on the sort of Sunday night, and um, we used to at Silverstone. Back in the day, it's still not brilliant, but getting in and out of the circuit back in the day was just impossible. Um, so we would basically um, have a flatbed truck that was set up that would drive into the paddock um, at the uh, at the end of the race weekend. By that point, EJ had managed to smuggle passes and get people through the fence. And so, you know, most of the factory by this point was in the paddock. <laughs> I can remember Bernie Eccleston walking past at one point and, you know, he's walking down the row of motorhomes and he looked at, there's a few people outside Williams, a few people outside McLaren, 250 people outside Jordan. And Bernie just walked past and like, looked at EJ and just shrugged his shoulders <laughs> and shook his head like, Mate, how have you got all of those people in here? You know, you've pulled a fast one here somewhere. But <laughs> so, um, so we'd we'd have this flatbed truck would pull in uh, with with a few musicians on it, and there were actually it was a few musicians from around the paddock. It started off as there was a you know a brilliant um, couple of guitar players at Tyrrell, and uh, there was a guy who was one of the tire fitters, and you know, so we put together this this makeshift band. And a few of the drivers would get up on stage and join in. Johnny Herbert would always get up and sing Go Nolly, Johnny Go. And Damon Hill was a pretty good guitarist, so he'd get up and join in as well. And this then gradually grew year on year. So before you know it, we've got Nick Mason playing the drums with with Eddie joining in. And we've got, you know, really good, uh, can't remember his name now, but the... um, Bass player from the Pretenders would always be up there, and some proper good musicians would would be would be up on stage. And it got to the point where all of the fans could hear this going on, so they were all trying to sort of get into the paddock so that they could enjoy the the music as well. And at that point, Silverson said, "Listen, we're gonna we're gonna take this outside so that the fans can enjoy it and and you know set it up." And they now have you know a massive, great big stage and and big proper name bands playing on there every year. But it was always fun pulling pulling that together as well. So cool. What about the cars and drivers in that in that chapter in that part for you? We had so many of them. I mean, you know, it it, it was a hand to mouth existence to a certain extent. Um, uh, you know, we were lucky. We, we had a couple of years when we had, you know, big sponsors like Sassol came on board and were with us. But I remember we had almost a different driver in the car every race weekend because that different driver would be bringing a load of cash along with them as well. So our car, it looked like a, you know, a, a Christmas tree done up by a nine-year-old. It just had so many different logos. It, if there was a space, there'd be a logo on it because, you know, and we'd even, you know, we were talking about Adelaide earlier on, you know, we'd, we'd come down to Adelaide and we had a, like a, a pizza restaurant there became our sponsor because that meant that they were providing dinner for the boys every night. So, you know, so they'd have their logo all over the car. And so, you know, we did lots of loads and loads of of little deals. And as I say, we'd have different drivers came in the whole time. But I mean, the ones that spring to mind, um, I remember when Eddie Irvine um, came along. Um, in fact, I remember standing in the garage, there was a, a test at Silverstone and I was standing with, with Ian Phillips and we saw this scruffy larrikin walk into the front of the garage and, Ian said to me, who's that? 
no idea who he is. Do you know who he is? I have no idea who he is. So Ian went over to throw him out, at which point discovered actually I'm, a, I'm Eddie Irvine and, and I've come along to have a chat with Eddie Jordan. And it's like, oh, come come out the back then, mate. I won't throw you out now. But, you know, um, Ruben Sparrichello obviously was with the team for, for, for quite a long time as well. Um, but we had people like, you know, Thierry Boots and a whole long list of Italian drivers, you know, in the era of when they were sort of in for one race weekend and, and then out again. But no, we had some. And, and then the only um, driver who I always say throughout my entire career doing PR, I worked with one grown up and that was Martin Brundle. Um, he was the driver at Jordan in uh, in the last year, his last year of being a Formula One driver and uh, my last year working as a, as a press officer. No doubt Lulu Bell can recall a young Jensen Barton too. JB's title win in 2009 was an F1 fairy tale, and it was in Melbourne that we realised he was a serious contender. And the the next big race for me was 2009, you know, coming mm. coming to Australia, Melbourne, with the package we had, but also very uncertain of whether we'd get to the end of the race. Hadn't practiced pit stops, hadn't done anything like that. No sponsor on the car. It was a, it was a pretty epic weekend. Hear Jensen's epic chat. Rusty reckons it's epic anyway. It's parked up in the Rusty's garage library. Why can I never find the keys to Rusty's car there? Trust issues, obviously. Now back to Louise Goodman. I have my buddy Neil Crompton, and your friend as well, Crompton. has reminded me for this podcast chat to ask you about Eddie Irvine water skiing, you're the press officer, Crompo's at the helm of the boat. I think it might have even been pre the Australian Grand Prix. They were egging each other on. Uh, Irvine was water skiing, Crompo was at the helm, and you, I think, were freaking out about your driver getting injured or something, weren't you? Well, yeah, I I do remember this. We came up, yeah, and it was before before the race. So, um, uh, yeah, and they, they were just being children, basically. Um, so, uh, you know, Crompo was like, how, how fast can I pull this guy? Irv's on the end of a line screaming at him as well. It was just like, children, stop it. No one's impressed here. Just stop it. You're being stupid. I need him to be hit the next race. You know, let's just calm it down, kids, will you? And apart from anything else, I'm about to go out the side of this boat. So So how many years all up in that, uh, in that PR capacity and what? I mean, you're playing at the highest level of of sport. Um, yes, I'm sure there was some great um, moments, but but um, you know that tests you as well. Public relations at that sort of level, Lou, is is uh, is not a small thing. No, it, do you know what though? It was that was one of the great things about working for EJ. We were an upstart team with a, a rebel reputation. And it meant that Eddie was open to any kind of, um, or not any, but, you know, lots of ideas that the other more established teams wouldn't have thought about doing. You know, there was a television programme over here in the, in the UK, I think it was called You Bet, where, you know, they did various different stunts. So we basically ended up... And in fact, Gary Anderson, who was the technical director at the time, spent forever doing the mathematical calculations to see whether, you know, that trick where you pull a tablecloth off a table and to see whether you can, you know, the cutlery and the crockery mm-hmm. and everything stays yeah. it, to see whether the thing was people had to bet on whether you could whip that cloth off 
with the tablecloth tied to the back of a Formula One car. So, you know, so things like that. And we, we did it in the end on the third go, which was like going to be the, you know, the actual take. We had two rehearsals and it failed both times. Gary was beside himself, had the calculator out doing the calculations about the speed we needed and the how long the rope had to be and everything like that. And so, you know, little stunts like that. We... That, as I say, other teams wouldn't wouldn't mm. think about doing. So it made it it made it fun for me, and it meant I kind of had pretty much carte blanche to to do these these different events. We one of the ones that always sticks out in my mind was we were we were sponsored by for a while by Barclay Cigarettes, which was also part of um, was it Barclay? No, I think actually no, I'm lying. It was when we were with Benson and Hedges. Anyway, it was partnered with uh, Three Fives, which who sponsored um, the Subaru World Rally Championship team, which enabled us to do it. So we did a cross drive. I came up with the idea of doing a cross drive. Let's put Colin McRae. And Colin had always wanted to have a go in the Formula One car. So um, I say I came up with the idea. Colin was like, I want to drive that car. I want to drive that car. So we put Colin in the Formula One car and Martin drove in the rally car. Um, but that I say, Mark, the whole deal, obviously, is the drivers telling each other about their, you know, their disciplines. That was part of the story. So we we, we put Martin in the rally car and said to Colin, and then you'll go with him. And Colin's like, no, I'm not getting that. You know, Colin was like, I'm not sitting in a car with a bloke who's never driven this rally car and going through a station. No bloody way. It's like, mate, you've got to. That's that's part of my shot. I need you in the car with him for the TV. Anyway, we eventually got Colin to sit in the car and um, that bit went really well. When it came to him driving the Formula One car, he'd had the conversation with Martin about, um, you know, talk me through the start. So Martin had said, whatever, put however many revs on the clock, drop the clutch away you go. Colin being Colin decided he'd put a few more revs on the clock. So as he as he set off, I was actually standing on the on the pit wall at Silverstone um, alongside David Richards, the boss of the Pro Drive team. And we both was literally went, oh my God, and ducked down behind because Colin was just fishtailing down this main straight at Silverstone. How we didn't hit the pit wall. And I'm thinking that car's got to go off to a race on Tuesday. Please do not smash into the wall. Do not smash into the wall. I'll be in so much trouble if this PR stunt goes horribly wrong. So it didn't. I'm, I'm happy to say there's still footage of it on the uh, on the um, on the internet as well. If um, if people want to look it up, but Colin's face when he got out of the Formula One car, and I, I seem to remember it was his birthday as well. He was just so excited at the fact he'd been able to do it, and myself and the team, and and you know David Richards, his boss, were just so relieved that he everything and the cars had all come back in one piece. So so as I say, that you know I was able to do things like that. Um, because Eddie was just like, yeah, that's fine. We'll we'll have a go at that. We'll have a go at that. Whereas I think you know some of the other teams had a more kind of established reputation, and they 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 weren't prepared to do slightly crazier things that that, that we did. We even had somebody got they couldn't get married um, in our garage at Silverstone because legally they weren't allowed to. But I said, yeah, you can come along and do pictures afterwards. You know, one of the other teams passed that on. They said, oh, no, that's not our kind of thing. But try Jordan. I was like, yep, I'll have some of that. That's a great tabloid story. So, you know, they came along and there's the bride in her wedding dress and the groom in his regalia having their pictures taken. It was, and it was, you know, it made made, made it into the tabloids. So, um, great. I'll have that coverage. Farah Swansis, thank you very much. Now, before we move into television, you do have, um, my colleague Cam reminded me, a very interesting story about being in a Formula One two-seater with some big names and there was an incident. And people can find this online, can't they? They can indeed. I just leaned across because on the on my office wall here, there is a rear wing end plate 
on the side of it, it says European Aviation, which, as many people will know, was Paul Stoddart's um, airline. And yes, Minardi um, had uh, some some two-seaters, which I, I'd always... Two-seaters was something that we had in Powerboat. So I'd often said, why don't we do a two-seater Formula One car? It got poo-pooed. And then, you know, a few years down the line, first of all, McLaren did one. And then, you know, Minardi had this two-seater Formula One car. So, yeah, Stoddy um, set up to have a race, not so uh, the first ever two-seater race for Formula One cars. So it was up at uh, up at Donington. Um, at this, by this time, I was I was working television. So Stoddy said, would I, would I like to come along? Um, and first of all, um, you know, he said, oh, do you want to come in the back of my car? And I kind of thought, I really want to go in the back of the car of that young lad, Fernando Alonso, because I think, you know, he's quite good. He might be champion one day. So, Stoddy, I'm sorry, um, Fernando was literally just, just driving for the Renardi team at the time. So, so anyway, uh, it, it was it was arranged I'd go in the back of, uh, of Fernando's car. So, yeah, we... Um, they were giving sort of demonstration laps to people throughout a lot of the day. There was one guy there who'd paid a fortune to be in the back with um, Nigel Mansell. So Nigel had come along as our star driver. And the whole deal was basically that Nigel was going to win the race. It was, I say race, the race bit was inverted commas. All of the drivers, you know, you'd we all set off and then everybody had to come in and do a pit stop. And by the time all the pit stops are played out, guess what? Nigel Mansell is going to be the winner of the race because it was done for promotion that was going to get them that get the most publicity. So, but I think Fernando basically wasn't counting the laps down. So, as we came down the back straight at, at Donington before the final chicane, we overtook Mansell, um, who obviously wasn't too happy about being overtaken. So he's right on our tail. As we came through the chicane, as we came round the chicane, Fernando obviously saw the chequered flag flying and thought, oh shit, I'm going to be in trouble. I'm not supposed to win this race. He lifted, not realizing that Nigel was right up our chuff. So boof went straight into the back of us. So I felt this kind of bang and there's a shadow that sort of appeared. Obviously, it all happened really quickly, but this shadow was actually Nigel's car going, kind of twisting around on our roll hoop. So just above my head and then landing on the circuit behind. At this point, I'm now like bashing Fernando going, go on, mate, because he did stopped. I'm thinking, mate, the finish line's just there. Come on, come on, we can still win this race. And the irony was actually that we were all up on the podium afterwards and everybody was absolutely fine. You know, nobody, no injuries at all. The guy who was in the back of Nigel's car, who, as I said, paid a fortune for it, loved it so much. He, he paid another fortune to do it again at some point. But we were all up on the podium podium we'd been given some champagne to spray and it was all getting in my hair and it was dripping down my face so I leant forward so I could flick my hair back unbeknownst to me Fernando was behind me with an upended Jeroboam of champagne which he was pouring over me so as I stood up I just cracked this bottle on the back of my head which was my major injury it was he was absolute agony I thought he cracked the skull or something but so that was the only injury was was me cracking myself on a on an upended bottle of champagne at the end of the race. <laughs> How do you go from being on the PR side of the fence into television? And I and I ask that because it's not necessarily the traditional broadcaster path, but you do occasionally hear these stories of people that are immersed in the game, that love it, and then someone comes along on the television side that goes, that person would be a, a good communicator, a good a good person to have as a part of our team because they know the key players, they're good at finding out the information, etc. How did that door open for you and how did it go initially? 
it basically i i'd i'd done i'd done no television i had no desire to do i say i'd done no television i've been done a couple of tiny bits i do remember one year in adelaide i was asked to do a, a two-way with one of the local tv stations so i'm there on my own nobody else is at the circuit first thing in the morning with some headphones on looking down at a camera never done anything like this but you know i think it went well because people would as they came into the circuit, we say, oh, I saw you on the tennis ball. You were really good. Yeah. And and when I was working at Jordan, um, I used to do some little voice reports for RTE, the Irish television. So they'd come down to me in the garage and I'd give them a flavour of what was going on or when we had a pit stop or something like that. But that was it. Here in the UK, the, the coverage of Formula One for quite some time at that point had been come from the BBC. Um, and the contract was up for renewal uh, and ITV basically got the got the contract to, to cover Formula One. Um, ITV, the commercial station at the time was quite regional, so they didn't have a big centralised sports department. So they basically put out to tender two production companies to actually... Uh, for a contract to, to actually make the programs that they would then show on ITV. So I was approached by one of the companies that that was was putting in for a tender for exactly the reasons you say. I knew the sport, I knew the people to talk to, I knew what to ask, I knew when to ask them as well because that makes it makes a big difference. So I could open doors for them. They knew all about television. They needed people who who knew about about motorsport and, and who knew about Formula One. So that's why they approached me. And it was just an abstract concept initially. Do you fancy doing this? Go on then, put my name down, you know, put, because the perceived wisdom was that that wasn't going to be the, um, or rather that there was another company that, you know, everyone was saying, oh, they're going to get the gig, they're going to get the gig. And then blow me down. Well, in fact, that that other company then latterly approached me and said, was I interested on in being in on their bid as well? But but it was this this original one, um, Mac One it was called. So it was a mixture of Meridian and Anglia, which are two of the regional um, channels here in the UK, and and Chrysalis a Television, which was part of um, you know the larger Chrysalis organisation. Uh, so they really put their put their faith in me, and you know. As I say, they, they either took somebody who, who knew about television and taught them about Formula One or they took somebody who knew about Formula One and taught them about television. And luckily for me, they went that latter route. And luckily for me, um, it was the Mac One bid that Bernie, you know, that sorry, that ITV selected as, as being the one that was going to make the programme. We then had a bit of a gap between that being agreed and then they obviously had to go to Bernie to get his approval, to get all the passes that they needed, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a little bit of a, a gap uh, before ITV were in a position to kind of formally offer me the contract. At that point, everybody knew my name was on the bid. It was so uh, I couldn't then at that point say, "Oh, I don't know about that." So I sort of it was one of those things that uh, <laughs> if, if I'd ever been made to sit down and actually think about, okay, do you really want to do this? Because you're not going to get any training. You're just going to be given a microphone and some headphones, and off you go. And you know. Um, but as I say, by that point, it's like, yeah, Louise Goodman's on there. So it was sort of a fait accompli. So I'm glad it was that way because I think it, you know, and it was, I remember that first race was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. They said to me in one of the practice sessions, and, you know, you'll know how it works in TV. They said, we just need you to walk up and down and give us something for level. I'm like, what does give us something for level mean? I don't understand. What do they mean? It's like, well, what do you mean? No, just, just talk. 
think about what? I don't know what to talk about. I don't know what to say. You know, at that point, it doesn't matter what you're saying. You're just wandering around talking at the level you're going to be talking when, you, when you're broadcasting. But even that I found absolutely terrifying because I just didn't know what to say. I, you know, I had a shaky little hand because I was so nervous and I really like squeaky little voice. Our um, series editor used to say to me, Louise, low and slow, low and slow, you know, because I was doing the traditional, really nervous, my voice got really high, I was thinking we really, really quickly. So um, it was daunting. It was really daunting in the in the first year. And I, you know, at times I hated it. I used to go home and cry thinking, oh, I can't do this. I'm rubbish at it. And, you know, I'm not very good at not being very good at things. So I think I was quite, quite hard on myself. But, but you know, to go from nothing to broadcasting at that time, you know, there were we're talking sort of before the proliferation of channels that we have now. So we were getting seven, eight, nine million people watching the program at times. And, you know, that's that's a kind of that, that's a that's a big number to be learning how to do something in front of, basically. Thank goodness, you know, the people in the paddock knew me. The drivers were great with me because they could tell I was really nervous um, and they were, you know, they were really, really kind. I can remember the look on Damon's face, Damon Hill's face, when I had asked him. He, he'd broken, he broke down, I think, or had some kind of incident on the on the lap to the grid. And when he finally got back in um, to the garage, he's like, I did the classical. What, what happened? And he told me what happened. And I said, well, thank you. And Damon looking at me thinking, no, you're supposed to ask a follow-up question at this point. <laughs> you know, just naive stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it was, it was scary, scary times. Did you have someone that in the end could kind of help mentor you in, in that regard? And when did you do, you know, because it, it's it's a game of uh, kind of feeling comfortable in your own skin because you are, you are there being, as you said, with 9 million people or more watching and so on. At, at what point did it become um, something you were more at ease with? Um, I tell you who was, who was, I mean, I had a few people that were helping me out. James Allen who was the pit lane reporter at the time. I knew James because he'd been a, a press mm-hmm. officer for the Brabham team. Um, and then he'd gone on to, to work with with ESPN. So, you know, I went out. He was the other pit lane reporter for, for ITV. So James and I went out and he was great in terms of saying, you know, ask an open question so people can't give you a yes or no and, you know, do this, do that kind of thing. One of the producers, um, a guy called Kevin Piper, who worked at Anglia, who again when I was a press officer at Jordan, we were in his region. So I knew him quite well. He was the main sports guy who was always down doing stories with us. So, you know, Martin Brundle was was the commentator. So, and that was great because Martin and I had both at the same time taken this leap into the telly world. So, and it, when you work for a team in Formula One, you have a base, you know, you have the team motorhome, you have the team area. That's That's where you live. You know everybody there. When you're suddenly, and, and you don't go into anybody else's motorhome, when you're suddenly working in the media, you can go into sort of anybody's motorhome, but you don't belong in any of them. And at the time, Martin and I didn't feel like we belonged in the TV compound either. because we. So it was great that Martin was in a similar situation of like, oh, gosh, how do we do, you know, what what are we doing here? How did this happen? Where do we go? Where can we? Um, because it, it is an odd feeling. But I think by the, I remember at the end of the first year, um, we, we had a team dinner at the Sunday night of the last race. And um, Neil Duncanson, who was the, you know, the, the boss of the, of the company, who, uh, you know, and bless him, he'd obviously taken a, you know, big leap of faith in, in bringing me in. Um, and, uh, he kind of went round the table and had a few words to say about everybody, and and I just kind of thought, okay, all right, I've, I think I've, I think I've sort of got this, got this a bit now. You know, I, 
one year under my belt, I was starting to feel more comfortable. Of course, I'd then go off to, there was a big party that the whole load of team people were at from various different teams and a rather drunk mechanic came up and said, oh, you're that girl who does telly. My wife thinks you're shit. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, cheers, mate. <laughs> and I just go, but, but thankfully, having just had this pep talk, I was able to say, do you know what? I don't care what your wife thinks because my boss thinks I'm doing a good job so sod you toddle off mate and have another beer kind of thing um, and, and it is you know you know what it's like it's quite difficult because we as a broadcaster you are there sort of in the spotlight is maybe too strong a word to put it but you're there you're visible everybody can have a view on how you do your job um, we don't normally have a view on how people do their jobs so it, it's a you know it's a tricky one That's the end of part one of my podcast with respected F1 TV broadcaster Louise Goodman. Looks like Lou has a cuppa there and is up for a bit more conversation, so that's great news for you. We have a second instalment all loaded up in the garage and ready to go whenever you are. Garnering the first interview on a very special weekend for the Jordan F1 team and being there to talk to Lewis Hamilton when he claimed his first world title. Chatting to the Ocean's Eleven stars on the grid in Monaco. Losing someone very close to her heart who was a key figure at Minardi. Working with the legendary Murray Walker. How a part-time approach in what is now a massive F1 season has kind of reignited her enthusiasm. Plus, media training the next wave of stars, including a youngster named Lando Norris. And the traits a driver needs out of the car if they're to be the complete package. All that and more on this feature edition of Rusty's Garage.